I didn't hit that at all, did I? <laughs> that was. <laughs> hey, man, it's a new first name, James. It's a new song. You know, I got to try singing along a little bit. Welcome to this, the Red Bull podcast, Risk Made Me Do It. I'm your host, Andreas Georges. You noticed we have a new intro song. We've got a new name. We've uh, embraced the mothership, Red Bull. Uh, we're still talking to top performers in the worlds of adventure, culture, and in innovation. We're still trying to understand their path to mastery, trying to understand their uh, hurdles they had to overcome, the tips and tricks that made them better. And we still have preview podcasts. Uh, we've got one this week, in fact. And it's on next week's guests, who we're going to mention. Usually we kind of tease it out. We don't really mention until the very end. But we're going to start right off because uh, Mike Bazich is actually going to be an active participant in this preview podcast. I want to take you back to a time not so long ago, but, but seemingly ages ago. This is before Selfie was in the Oxford Dictionary, before GoPro was even the the shred of an idea in founder Nick Woodman's mind. I believe he was uh, probably still playing Little League at that point. There was Mike Bazich, a pro snowboarder with an extreme DIY bug, looking to recast the way people saw his sport and maybe even rejuvenate his career. He was one of the big writers during snowboarding's lawless, heady, experimental early days, the heydays, the late 80s, the early 90s. This was before Sean White before big brands got involved, before the Olympics. He'd fly to Europe and Japan, appearing in-store at snowboarding shops to sign gear or uh, to compete in competitions. He'd party as well, of course, and his popularity was such that he even spent a couple of summers rooming with Adam Yock, the sadly departed Beastie Boy. But as his pro career days waned, he looked around for things to keep him active, uh, to stimulate him. Photography had always been one of those things. In the late 90s, he had started welding together pieces of metal as makeshift mounts for his snowboards. He was really hoping to offer a different perspective, his own perspective. These mounts would hold his 35mm Nikon camera. They weighed about 12 pounds, uh, and he'd set off the shutter via remote. I tried to have someone let me borrow their camera, you know, to just go off a kicker with a follow cam. You know, these things are 12 pounds, you know, of steel. And so I ended up taking the risk of just going, hucking myself off cliffs with this gear and not knowing really what, what I was going to get. But I knew there was something I wanted to try to capture. I mean, my parents don't snowboard, so I wanted to share my experience, you know, like the POV view of what, yeah. what I see and feel. The shots were, in a word, epic. Never before had a jump been caught from the snowboarder's perspective. And all this in 1999. Basich caught himself doing epic jumps. He'd hike up twice, once to set up the camera and actually the second time to, to pull off the jump. He shot himself going off of cliffs. He photographed people working on a jump as he soared above them, his hand clutching the side of his snowboard, just visible in the bottom left of the frame. Another setup caught him at night, hucking over a road, the headlights of a waiting jeep, illuminating his arc across the night sky. But there was one photo one setup, he just couldn't get out of his mind. I wanted to make a photo look impossible. And so the idea was to have a frame without the helicopter in the shot. And there's this person just falling out of the sky. So there'd be no cliff that he could jump off or it needed to be big enough that it wasn't like a quarter pipe hit. And so that was my goal. That's why it had to be big. It was an idea that, that stewed in his mind for a few years. After all, 
he couldn't simply walk up to any helicopter pilot, ask him to fly out to a peak, and then just kind of drop out in an insane height. He had to find the right helicopter pilot, someone who had known his reputation as an excellent snowboarder. In 2002, he finally found his man. It was a guy he'd worked with before in Alaska. The owner of the helicopter service I knew well, and he's like, I gave, told him the idea. He's like, sure, we'll make that happen. So there uh, must have been something in his pitch, right? Uh, charts, graphs showing the speed of the drop that he presented him. You know, the, the, the physics of it all. No, no, it was a 30-second conversation on the phone. <laughs> it was hard to pick a spot. Though there were many mountains in Alaska that fit the bill, he was looking for something very specific. He, he needed a landing spot where the snow was deep enough to be forgiven when he landed, and, and it had to also be in an angle. And he also needed a place where he could set up his camera on a nearby peak to capture this insane drop. Yeah, this is the most I've maxed out my remotes. It's about probably 800, 900 feet away. And I, I didn't know if I was going to get the photo or not. You know? And I didn't really know either after I took it because I don't it was slide film. He didn't invite other photographers or film crew for a reason. He didn't want to pressure himself if he didn't feel it was right. But they took off, they flew out, and there he was, hovering 120 feet above the roll that he had selected, and he pushed out. He dropped out of the plane to the peak below, his thumb feverishly pressing the remote button as he descended, praying he got the shot, and, you know, that he'd land okay, too. The, the one struggle with the helicopter jump was that, uh, the down pressure, the, the wind from the blades. So I actually got going faster than gravity. And so I hit the, heart, the snow pretty hard, but no, I did not land it. I, uh, I, I buried myself, actually, in the snow. Yeah, I got covered. <laughs> but he was okay. Somehow miraculously okay. <laughs> the photo went out, but he purposely kept the making of it a secret. Some people thought it was a publicity stunt because it was, it was just so massive, and other people thought it was fake. They debated it, but the reaction didn't bother him. I, just, I wanted to, yeah, feel what that was for myself, and the photography part, I was really excited. When I got the photo developed, yeah, I, I got the shakes. Like I, I shook for actually a couple months every time I look at the photo. After the heli drop, he was able to pitch himself in a different way. He was a package deal now. That photograph got him in the door of companies, of brands, of magazines. People liked what he did, and he pitched himself both as a writer and a photographer. He was able to make money because he would be able to be paid out of their marketing budget as opposed to just being a writer on their roster. Then the world evolved, and Apple put a top-quality camera on a smartphone. And then GoPro came about and made sharing epic footage with tiny cameras that clasped onto boards. They made it as simple as, as just a few pushes of a button. And today there's people dropping 200 feet off of cliffs and landing it. So Bazich, he pivoted again. He's now kind of a pioneer in the off-the-grid movement. He built a small house on 40 acres of land, lugging rocks around, project that took him many, many months. And then he got the idea to build a tiny home on a trailer that he could drag deep, deep into the Alaskan backcountry to search for fresh powder. So what does he miss? I don't miss carrying a 40-pound backpack on my back, you know. I love having something that's a half a pound, the one thing I do miss when I, I made a book of all my photographies 
for of 15 years. It's called the, the Frozen Chase. And uh, looking through all my photos, I realized back in 35 millimeter days, everything is so much more artistic. And I think because it just there's there was so much more put into it. It was a lot more hardship put into that time. You see, there's something about hardship that attracts Bazich. And we spent a good amount of time in next week's conversation talking about whether true creativity is only measured by the amount of work that you put into it. Of course, his definition of work involves both creative thinking and physical exertion. He's got a, a fascinating mind and leads the kind of lifestyle that many of us out here in, in urban centers or in the rat race only dream about. Out in the wild, self-reliant, completely unplugged. Incidentally, if you want to see the shot, you can find us now on Facebook. We're under the group The Red Bull Podcast. We've got a video on that page uh, with his story. We've cut it together. And then I hope you tune in next week for the full interview. I think you'll really dig it. And by the way, welcome to Risk Make Me Do It. I'm your host, Andreas George. See you next time. Home.